With you today, let's turn for the last time to the book of James. I know, that's the way I feel too. I have fallen in love with this book. I mean, I didn't know that I liked James this much before I entered into this study. We began it back in the first Sunday of January. This will be our 11th message from the book. We've just walked through it, starting with its main theme found in chapter 4, verse 8, draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. And then we went systematically through the book, seeing how we can draw near to God as James gives us instruction. And today we're going to find that we can draw near to God through prayer. We can draw near to God through prayer. So we'll read the last verses of this book, beginning in verse 13 and reading through verse 20. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. Let's pray and ask God to be our teacher today. Dear Heavenly Father, once again, it is our privilege and our honor to come into your presence, to hear your voice from your word. I pray and ask, Lord, that you would help us to receive the message that you have for us today. May we realize how underutilized this uh, opportunity of prayer is in our lives, and may we increase it more day by day. May it draw us nearer to you, and may it make an impact on those around us. Father, I pray and ask that as we conclude this study that you would just seal these things in our hearts and that you would help us to continue in this journey of drawing near to you each and every day. I pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to fill me, to guide me, to help me, to communicate today and say only those things that you would have me to say. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just uh, as James started his letter, he finishes his letter. He started his letter with an admonishment to have patience. Remember that? Look back at James chapter 1 verse 3. He says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect or complete work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him, but let him ask in faith. And so James began the letter with an admonishment to have patience and a call to prayer following that admonishment. And that's exactly how he ends the book of James. If you recall last week, in verses 7 through 12, James admonished us to have patience to the coming of the Lord. And now he follows that up with a call to 
prayer, patience and prayer going together. What I find extremely interesting is that patience and prayer are each mentioned seven times in this last chapter. And we know that seven represents completeness in the Bible. And it's as if James is saying, here's the final word, here's the completion, we come back full circle, where we started, patience and prayer. This really is a great summary to the Christian life. We have to patiently wait for the coming of the Lord. You and I are not called to be idle, we're called to be active, but we are called to be actively waiting, doing what we can, waiting on God to do what He will do, acknowledging and understanding that He has some things in process that are working out. But we also need to be praying along the way. Praying along the way, realizing that prayer is as impactful as anything else that we can do. And if we can't do anything else while we're waiting, we can pray. If we can't do anything else while we are patiently waiting on the Lord, we can pray. You know, as I've pastored almost 20 years now, I have observed a lot of things in church. I have processed things for my own self. And and I remember when I first started, I was planting a church. And so when you're planting a church, you're attracting active people. You, you're not inheriting people who are shut-ins and that sort of thing with you when you have a, take a pastor of an older church. So, so you are activity-oriented. And so we were trying to build a church. We're reaching people. And I remember a lot of my preaching was geared to, to, to do this, do this, do this. Let's go out and preach the gospel. Let's make disciples. Let's get people in here. Let's teach them. Let's do all of these things. And, 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 At that point in my life, I'd say that my perspective was limited because when I thought about serving God, it was always in the activity. But as I've gotten older, people around me have gotten older, I have now been called to pastor a church. And when I came, it was 130 years old, still had a few founding members in it. I'm just kidding. But I had people who were shut-ins who weren't able to go. And so what is there to do for a person who doesn't have the health the vitality, the energy, the ability to go. And does that mean that their time of serving the Lord is over? Does that mean that there's nothing for them to do? Does that mean that they're not as viable or as profitable to the kingdom of God? And I say, no, I have come to understand that in those times, that prayer that we have neglected for so long oftentimes becomes one of the most impactful ministries of their entire Christian life. You know, prayer is one of the most neglected avenues by which we can draw near to God. When we think about the way we draw near to God, we understand that through James's writing, there are some somewhat indirect ways that draw us near. I mean, when he starts out, he's talking about trials, tribulations. Those are a bit indirect. They hit us from the side. Sometimes they knock us off balance. Sometimes we're disoriented and we're just trying to recover. And it takes us a while to clue in to say, oh, God is going to use this to draw me closer to him. It's an indirect drawing to God. But prayer is a direct avenue to God. I mean, the entire activity is God-directed. We are not getting caught off guard by something. We are simply coming in and saying, I'm going into the presence of God. I've got an open invitation to come into His throne room of grace. I am speaking directly to the God of heaven. And I can do this anytime, anywhere, verbally or non-verbally. I can talk to God. And yet, I don't do it as often 
as it should. I could quote to you statistics. I could quote to you statistics about how little time the average Christian spends in prayer. But I really think that we are all acutely aware of the paltriness of our own prayer lives. You don't need me to tell you how little Christians over there are praying or how little time Christians out there spend in prayer. You and I know in here how little time we spend in prayer. We find ourselves too busy to pray. Life's busy. You know, that is one of the downsides of our modern age. When I, when I watch movies and, and documentaries and read books about history set in different time periods, I romanticize it sometimes and say, oh man, the, uh, the pomp, the circumstance, the things that they did, I, I love some of that stuff. But when I think about the reality of life, I think I'm glad I wasn't born back then because it was hard work just to live. I mean, if you had to get up and go out to the creek or the well just to get your water to bring it back in the house, if you had to get up and make the fire and get it heated up in order to start making food and baking bread, I mean, if you didn't have indoor plumbing, you didn't have electricity, you didn't have all these things, it was a lot of work just to live. And so I am extremely thankful that I was born in the modern age and that I have all these conveniences. But the downside of this modern age is that because life is now so convenient... We can heat the house with the push of a button or even just program that thing and forget about it. We can flip a lever on our faucet and hot water comes out. We can turn a switch on the wall and the electricity comes on. Because life has become so convenient, we have busied ourselves with so many other things. You know, sometimes older folks say, I long for the old, simple way of life. Can I tell you something? That, that is not just nostalgia about you at a younger age. That is actually a testimony about a difference in culture from 50 years ago till today. People were less busy then because they had less conveniences. You and I, with all of these conveniences, have made our lives so busy that we are too busy to pray. We find ourselves too overstimulated to pray. Well, I've got the time to pray, but I really have a hard time focusing, Pastor, in that, that quiet time. Do you know that there's been a rise in insomnia among adolescents because, because of the stimulation of a constant stream of media from a device is causing them to have a hard time to shut their brains down at night and to go to sleep. And I would say that the same is true for our prayer lives, and it's not just the adolescents, it's the adults. We are so stimulated by the constant stream of media that comes our way from funny video to tear-jerking video to salacious headlines that come our way and the neurological responses that come to that. We're so overstimulated that when it comes time to set that device down, to shut out all the noise and just be quiet and pray to God, we can't do it. We're overstimulated. We're finding ourselves too distracted to pray. Too distracted to pray. It's not just overstimulation, it's distraction. I've got so many other things that I could be doing right now that, uh, that are more enjoyable than prayer time, that are more fun than prayer time. While prayer is precious, let me tell you something, it's not the funnest thing that you can do. I understand that. God understands that. 
But we can't be distracted by frivolity and entertainment to the point to where we just don't pray. We find ourselves too self-reliant to pray. I can take care of this. I've got this. I don't need this. It is strange, it's a strange phenomenon that if you and I have one ounce of strength in us, we want to use that instead of calling on God and saying, God, I need you to do this for me. Oh, the, 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 the list could go on and on, but I imagine I have called your number already. I've rang your doorbell. I've got your address. We all are guilty of these things. One or more of them. Prayer was an underused resource in, in, in James's day for Christians. If you remember, he called them out for their prayerlessness. In chapter 4, verse 2, you, you, you have not because you ask not. That, that's a direct confrontation to prayerlessness. You're not getting some things because you're not praying about some things. You're not asking God for some things. And I would say that it has gotten worse, not better, in our day and time. That we are still suffering from the underuse of prayer. Prayer is the missing ingredient in most of our lives. We simply leave it out of the mix. James wants us to add it back into the daily recipe. He, he urges us to season everything in prayer. Prayer really ought to flavor every area of our lives. Now, I know if you're a chef or a restaurant or in the kitchen, you don't want one spice or seasoning to be the dominant taste on everything that you prepare. But let me tell you, when it comes to the Christian life, you do. You want it all to be flavored with prayer. You want it all to be seasoned with prayer. And so Chef James gives us four recipes with prayer that will draw us nearer to God. Number one, pray for the suffering. Pray for the suffering. In verse 13 he says, Is there any afflicted among you? Is there any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Afflicted means to suffer hardship, to have physical or mental stress, to have trouble. It is one of those beautiful words in Scripture that is both specific and general. It is both narrow and it is broad. It is specific to trouble. Hey, is anybody having trouble? Is anybody having stress? Is anybody having uh, this difficulty? But it is broad enough so that it's not just unique to the trouble that they had in the first century. It covers the trouble that I have in the 21st century. So that God is saying to the church in all ages, is there any among you having trouble? Let him or her pray. Hey, you know, that really could go without saying. Because I find the times in my life that I pray the most is when I'm in trouble, right? When I'm afflicted, when I'm suffering, when I'm in pain. Man, I don't need no prayer prompts then. I'm praying. Because it's personal. It's affecting me. It's affecting my way of life. It's affecting what I want to do. We are to pray during times of trouble. Are you having trouble? I don't know a person in the world that's not having trouble. And we do all kinds of things to assuage that trouble. But too often we treat prayer like it's a last resort instead of a first response to our trouble. 
Whatever trouble you are having, you ought to take it to God in prayer. Whatever is afflicting you, whether it is minor or whether it is major, you ought to take it to God in prayer. But notice what he conjoins in this verse. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Let him sing psalms. This is not the only time that prayer and praise is conjoined in Scripture. As a matter of fact, we find it hand in hand like two sides of the same coin all the way throughout Scripture. It's the reminder that we don't just pray when things are bad. We don't just pray when we have trouble. We praise when things are going good. We praise Him when we are happy. We praise Him when life is full of blessings. It is prayer and it is praise. It is something that we ought to practice in both in fact, when you think about Jesus' model prayer, when the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. We want to know how to pray. Jesus did not begin with the ask. He began with the praise. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That word hallowed means to be set apart as holy. It's a beautiful name. It's a special name. There's no other name like it. I'm, I'm going to take a moment before I come in and ask you for anything. God, I'm just going to think about who you are and how great you are. You're my Father and I hallow your name. In the second clause, he doesn't even ask for anything. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God, I'm more interested in what you want than in what I want. I want to put your kingdom first, not my kingdom first. I mean, above all things that I treasure on this earth, what I treasure the most is leaving it and entering into your kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Then he transitions. Give us this day our daily bread. See how that works? Prayer is praising. It is both. I mean, when you think about it, prayer is entering into the presence of God. Psalm 100 says, enter into His gates with thanksgiving, into His courts with praise. If you were to enter into the presence of God today, do you think you would go in with your needs first? Hey, God, can you do this? Can you give me that? Or do you think maybe if you were to stand in His glory today, you would fall on your face and cry out, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, because you are overwhelmed by His greatness. And I can assure you, it is the second that would happen when you enter into his presence. So why is it that in prayer we are saying we're coming into his presence, but we don't stop and praise him on the way in? We just come asking him. James is saying, hey, it's both. It's both. We praise him and we pray to him. That is what was modeled to us by Paul and Silas when they were in Philippi. If you remember, they had a direct call, the Macedonian call, and they went straight over to Philippi. They began to preach the gospel. They preached the gospel to a woman named Lydia. She gets saved. They are out preaching in the public, and there is a demon-possessed girl who's following them around. They cast the demon out of her. She gets saved. The people who own her and were making money off of her get upset. They have Paul and Silas arrested. They are publicly stripped of their upper garment they are beaten in public and then they are thrown into jail not just like the holding tank for the light offenders they are cast into the innermost part of the jail like the dungeon part of the jail and at the end of that day it says in Acts 16 25 at midnight at midnight they sang praises and prayed unto God that's what it is that's what we're looking for. We want to pray for the suffering and we want to praise Him for the blessings. Number two, pray for the sick. 
Pray for the sick. He says in verse 14, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have, any, if he have committed any sins, they shall be forgiving, forgiven him. Hey, can I remind you of this? Drawing near to God does not guarantee that you will be untouched by suffering, sickness, struggle, or sadness. So we've been talking about drawing near to God now for 11 weeks. And maybe you've been trying to draw near to God than you've ever been. And then something has happened in your life and you're wondering, why is this happening after I've been trying to get near to God? And I just have to remind you, drawing near to God does not guarantee that you will be insulated from those things. In fact, these are normal to the Christian life, but God allows them. God allows them because they can serve a purpose in drawing us nearer to God by the prayers that they prompt. Those things that are normal to life, the struggles, the sickness, the sadness, the suffering, can be used to draw us even closer to God. Some of the times that people get the closest to God in their life is when they are sick, when they are incapacitated, because of their sickness. Let's touch on a couple of the big issues that everybody has questions about. Anointing with oil. If, if they call for the elders of the church and they come anoint them with oil and, and pray over them, then they will be raised. Uh, what is this anointing with oil? Well, historically and biblically, oil was used for a few different things. Oil could be used medicinally. And so we even find that today that there are oils that are used and there are carrier oils and, and they are applied and they have a medicinal purpose. I mean, as you think about the synthetic drugs that we use, you realize those came from natural plants, don't you? And that they either pulverized them into a powder or a paste or mixed them, extracted them into an oil. And they would use those and apply those in old days. And then we figured out with technology how we could simulate it and get a stronger concentration of it. And that's how we got the modern pharmaceutical. So oil did serve a medicinal purpose. If you remember the Good Samaritan when he encountered the guy who was beat half to death, that he bound up his wounds with oil and wine. That was the medical treatment so oil was used for medicinal purposes uh, oil was used for hygienic purposes right when Jesus is saying when you fast don't go around all long-faced disheveled looking like you're fasting get up wash your face anoint your head with oil and then go about your day and so it was hygienic there are still people who use oil today for their hair not everybody's hair produces the natural oils. And so there are oils that you can use to, uh, for hygiene. Uh, you can use oils as astringents. You can use tea tree oil to uh, treat acne and things of that nature. And so we find that this oil could be used for medicinal purposes. It could be used for hygienic purposes. But it was also used for ritualistic purposes. In the Old Testament, we find that they would anoint the high priest with oil. They would anoint the king with oil. Jesus called the Christ. Christ literally means the anointed one. 
In that capacity, that oil was a consecrating. It was a setting apart. It was placing into the hands of God. God, this is your priest. God, this is your king. God, this is your Christ. And so it is believed that that is the sense in which the oil is used in this text. It's not necessarily medicinal or hygienic. It is ritualistic. It is that these elders of the church are coming and they are anointing that person with oil saying, God, it is in your hands. This person is in your hands. Only you are the one who can heal them and raise them up. There are some other questions about oil. I mean, why don't we do this all the time? Some churches do do it all the time. Well, some churches use it. I remember when I was young, I went to a church and they had an anointing service so that you could get filled with the Holy Ghost and speak in tongues. And so uh, you don't find that anywhere in the Bible. That's totally man-made. As far as anointing people with oil, I have done this throughout my ministry. I was an interim pastor at a church one time, and they practiced anointing with oil at every Sunday service. So between Sunday school and the Sunday morning service, there were people who would come down front who wanted to be anointed with oil and prayed over uh, by the pastor. And since I was filling that office, I was called on to do that. But if we're just going by the text, we're just going by the text, it is the sick person who's supposed to call on the elders of the church to come anoint them with oil and pray over them. So it doesn't become a ritualistic habit in every service, but it is also not an ignored practice that we never take up and use because we might, people might think we're weird because of it. It is still something that can be done. But notice, the emphasis is not on the anointing. The anointing is subsequent it is on the prayer. Look again at the text. Is any among you, is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. It comes first in order. Then anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Watch this, verse 15. And the prayer of faith, not the anointing of oil, but the prayer of faith shall save the sick. What is James saying here? James is saying that you and I should always consult the great physician. It is no disparagement upon modern medicine. It is not saying that you don't go to the doctor or you don't take medicine when you need to take medicine. It is saying that you don't do that alone, but that any time there is sickness, you ought to pray for that person who is sick. Conventional medicine is good, but the great physician should always be consulted. And it leaves it in the hands of the Lord. You anoint them in the name of the Lord. And it is the Lord who will choose to raise them up or not raise them up. It is the Lord who chooses to heal or not to heal. Part of the anointing with oil is the consecrating of saying, God, they are in your hands. We give them to your care. Whether you decide to give them healing on earth or healing in heaven, they are yours. And I can point to you in the Bible where there are times when God did not answer sincere prayers for healing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, who had to be one of the greatest treasures that God ever had on planet earth, said that he prayed three times for an infirmity, a thorn in the flesh, and that God did not remove that sickness, that illness, that disease, or whatever that was, but that he said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And so prayer didn't change Paul's condition, it changed Paul's attitude. Most gladly will I rejoice then in my infirmities, that when I am weak I may be made strong. You see, the prayer of faith says, God, I trust you even if you don't heal me. But there are times when God does heal. I don't believe in faith healers. 
I don't believe there's anybody who's got the power. See, the power doesn't reside in the person. It is speaking to the leadership of the church, the elders of the church. You don't just call the person with the gift of healing. You, you call for mature believers in the church to come pray over you and anoint you with oil. And there are times that God does heal. God did it for Hezekiah. Back in 2 Kings chapter 20, Hezekiah gets sick. It says that he has a boil. Boils are indicative of a bacterial infection. Sometimes it can come from, from a major failure like a kidney failure. Uh, and other times it, it can just be an infected hair. We're not told. But what we are told is that Hezekiah was dying. In fact, God sent his man Isaiah to say, Hezekiah, you're dying. Get your house in order. And Hezekiah turns in his bed and he prays to God. He asks God to heal him. And God heals him and extends his days by 15 years. But you know what's interesting about the healing of God? That it wasn't the prayer alone. But that God said, hey, take a, take a poultice and place it upon the boil. And he will be healed. And so God allowed them to use what would have been a modern medical practice in their day and time. Along with the answer to prayer to heal this man. The bottom line is this. We should pray for people who are sick. We should pray for people who are sick. We're not saying that we believe everybody will be healed, but we have not because we ask not. There might be some. I, I can testify to you this morning. I, I, I believe the power of prayer is working in my mom's life. Uh, not, not in reversing her kidney function. Uh, to be honest with you, that's not what I've prayed. My prayer, and what I've asked people to pray, is that she has good days. And you know, she has been having some good days. Her kidney function is still declining where it is. She's still very weak, barely gets from the bed to the wheelchair. But you know, she's not in pain and she's not nauseous like she was. Well, you can attribute that to whatever you want to attribute it to. But I'm going to count it towards the prayers of God's people. We pray for the sick. The third is pray for the sinners and the saints. Pray for the sinners and the saints, verses 14, uh, 15, uh, excuse me, verse 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I would attach verses 19 and 20 to this. Brethren, if any do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. We're supposed to pray for each other. This is in the context of the church. Is any among you afflicted? Is any among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church. Confess your sins one to another. Pray one for another. He is speaking to people who are in community together and he's saying we're supposed to pray for each other. We're supposed to pray for each other when we are struggling, when we are straying, when we are failing. But we're also to pray for one another as we strive in this spiritual life. Let's address the, the big elephant in the verse. Confess your faults one to another. Catholicism has turned this into an aberrant doctrine. Just like they have with anointing, they've turned that into the last rites that cleanses the body of any soul of any sin before it enters into heaven, which, by the way, has nothing to do with James. James was concerned about them getting healed. 
The same they've done with confessing. They say, well, you know, you've got to go confess your sins to a priest uh, who will in turn take those to the Lord for you. No, the Bible doesn't say that. It says confess your faults one to another. That means that any believer is one that you can confess to. But notice this, it also doesn't say sins. God uses words specifically in the Bible if you haven't figured that out. And there is a word for sin, harmatia. That's not the word that's used here. Do you know what the word that's used here is? The word that's translated trespasses and offenses in other places. Like if your brother trespasses against you and he repent that you are to forgive him. Or if you take your gift to the altar and you remember that somebody has ought against you. That you go and you repent of your trespass or your offense to them. The main thrust of this appears to be that if we have offended somebody, if we've trespassed against somebody, if we've sinned against somebody, we most certainly ought to go to them and confess that and own that and reconcile over that and pray for one another. But it's not just confined to those who have offended It is also for those who are needing prayer help in their walk with the Lord that there are things that we may struggle with. Perhaps you say, I need to pray more, and you find a brother or a sister, and you say, would you pray with me that God would help me to pray more, give me more opportunity to pray, make me take advantage of those opportunities to pray. That's a fault, right? That's a failing. That's a shortcoming. Perhaps you say, I don't witness enough. I want you to pray for me and hold me accountable, and I want you to ask me about that. Did you share the gospel with anybody this week? It is the idea that we pray for one another, both sinner and saint. Right? When somebody is getting away from the Lord and, and there, is, there is sin parading in their life, we ought to pray for them. We ought to pray for their conviction. We ought to pray for their correction. We ought to pray for God to work in their lives. But you know, we don't just confine it to praying for the people who have open sin in their lives. What about that young man or young woman that God may be dealing with about taking a step of faith into some type of full-time ministry? What about that brother or sister who, who, who is praying about what God would have them to do as the next step in their career? We are to pray for them as well. It is that idea that we pray for one another and we come alongside of each other and we fight for one another. You say, what can prayer do? Oh, I don't know. Tear down strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, 4. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Is it not attached to the spiritual armor in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, where we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places, and with all prayer and supplication, making intercession for the saints in all things? Hey, you and I can accomplish more on our knees than we can on our feet. When we get on our knees and we pray for God's people, we can see God do great things. He encourages us with this by saying, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What good is my prayer going to do? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Don't be scared by that word righteous. That doesn't mean the super righteous, the the, the uber righteous. There are only two classes of righteousness. There is unrighteous and there is righteous. And the only way for you to be righteous is to be in Christ. So if you're a Christian today, hey, you're righteous. You've been recreated in true righteousness. You've got the power. You've got the power. You've got the power of God dwelling in you because you've got the contact with God. 
Effectual, fervent, it is the idea of intensely focused. Sometimes we, we pray in a, a shotgun manner. Let me use a gun analogy. You know what a shotgun is? It's a wide blast, man. Like I'm going to shoot in that general direction. And so sometimes we pray. We just call out names. Lord, I'm praying for so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. I'm praying for whatever they're going through today. And we just, we're trying to cover a lot of people. We're not praying specifically. This may not be a good analogy, but, but the effectual fervent prayer is like a sniper shot. One bullet, crosshairs, intently aimed, checking the wind. I mean, everything is fast. It's all about that one target. And so there are times when you and I just need to, to take somebody to the throne of God in prayer. We need to pray them up one side and down the other. We need to pray for everything we can think of about them and everything connected to their situation. We want to pray for that person intently. And so God says that that can avail much. It has much power. The fourth, pray for the supernatural. Pray for the supernatural. James, in James-like fashion, reaches back into the Old Testament, pulls out an illustration of a character from back there. He's already mentioned to us Abraham, and he's mentioned to us Rahab. Now he mentions to us Elijah. The Greek transliteration, Elias in the King James, but it is Elijah is who he's talking about. You've got to understand that Elijah stood tall in the history of Israel. When, when, when you conjured up the name of Elijah, I mean, it was of mythological portions. I mean, this is the guy who stood against 400 prophets of Baal and won. This is the guy who closed up heaven from rain for three and a half years. This is the guy who went toe-to-toe with Ahab and Jezebel. This is the guy who turned the barrel of meal that lasted indefinitely. This is the guy who didn't even die. I mean, God sent him down a limousine chariot just to pick him up and take him back up to him. And so when you heard the name of Elijah and you were a Jew, it invoked all of these thoughts and feelings about this is the man. Which explains why James says what he says next. Notice it. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. Hey, bro. He's just a guy. Just a man. He had every infirmity that you had. He had every limitation that you had. Yes, he did some spectacular things, but the power wasn't in Elijah. The power was in Elijah's God, and he got it through prayer. How regular of a dude was he? Well, let me tell you, after he stood off those 400 prophets of Baal and he called down the rain on Israel, one little old queen named Jezebel says, I'm going to get you. And he went out in the woods, sat under a tree, had a pity party and said, God, I just want to quit. That's how normal he was. You ever wanted to quit? You're not tired of the fight. You're just tired in the fight. You're not quitting on God. You just want to quit on the people God's called you to, right? I mean, this guy just wanted to be done. That's how normal he was. He was a man subject to like passions as we are, yet he prayed. That's the difference. He prayed. He prayed and it shut heaven up from rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again and it rained again. 
Do you understand what a big deal that is? It was a big prayer. It's a very big prayer. Remember what James says, we have not because we ask not, we ask and receive not because we ask amiss that we might consume it upon our lust. James is telling us that we pray in the everyday trials of life. James is telling us that we pray for every sick person that we know. James is telling us that we pray for those who are sinning and those who are striving forward in the faith. But then he also says, hey man, there ought to be some things on your prayer list that only God can do. You see, because trouble can pass. Sickness can pass. People can change their course of action and get back in church. But there ought to be some things that we're asking God for that only God can do. If you're not asking God to do something that, that's bigger than you, then you may not have the right view of God. James tells us that Elijah prayed a big prayer. Had to do with the weather. Stop the weather. Stop the raining. Three and a half years. Think how big this prayer is. It affects the weather. Not only does it affect the weather, it affects the nation. The nation of Israel. It's a nationwide episode. And only that, it does it for three and a half years. All of that adds up to one big prayer. And so the takeaway that I have from that is that maybe we are praying too little in both senses of the word. We spend too little time in prayer and we're asking for things that are too little. Oh, but remember, it's got to be in line with God's will. We, we ask and receive not because we ask amiss. We're not asking the supernatural God, would you make me to be able to fly without wings? Well, no, you moron. What good does that do? Get on an airplane. It is for his glory. When I think about big prayer requests, I think about Acts chapter 4, when the disciples were threatened with their lives by the people who had killed Jesus, by the way. Don't preach in his name anymore. And they go back to the church and they say, Church, we need to have a prayer meeting. And they don't pray for those counselors to be deposed or to meet an untimely death. Their big supernatural request is, God, give us boldness to speak your word in the face of opposition. And supernaturally, the Holy Spirit condescends on them in such a way that it shakes the entire building. And they go out from that place and they speak boldly in the name of Jesus. If you don't think that's supernatural, if you don't think that's supernatural, I would just ask you, when's the last time you gave the gospel? I'm telling you, it would take an act of God to get some Christians to give the gospel. Does that offend you? Is it true? Supernatural. Those are the things I'm talking about praying for. How about Peter in Acts chapter 12 when he's in prison and they are going to execute him and the church has a prayer meeting all night? Continuously, without ceasing, they come and pray all night long. And God sends an angel who unlocks the jail and delivers Peter out so that he comes and knocks on the door of the prayer meeting that was praying for his deliverance. That's a supernatural answer to prayer. What am I suggesting that you pray for? Well, it depends on your context, but I would think that we pray for things that have to do with our nation. I would think that we pray for things that have to do with our laws, with our government, with our culture, with revival, with salvation. 
with the truth of God. Those are supernatural things. No legislation is going to change the hearts of men and women. No elected official is going to bring revival to our country. Only God can do that. And you and I ought to be praying for some supernatural things like that. Would you bow with me? As we conclude this message in prayer, we do want to pray for people who are suffering in trouble today. We know that troubles come. And while we may not be able to have the resources, the strength, or the ability to alleviate the trouble, we can pray. We can pray for one another. We can lift each other up. We can pray for the sick. We can pray for God's will to be done. Trusting that God heals some and others he takes to heaven with him. We can pray for each other. We can pray as we seek to follow the Lord and the struggles that we have along the way. We can enlist each other to pray for ourselves as we confess to one another our struggles. But we also can pray for something supernatural. And as we join together in prayer this morning as a church, that's what I want to pray for. I want to pray for revival. I want to pray for true, genuine revival of God's people. Revival that gets people in love with God again. Revival that fills up church houses again. Revival that sends the church people out into the community with the gospel. Revival that loves neighbors and loves them to Christ. Revival that opens the mouths of those who are too timid to speak the gospel. Dear God, we just come to you today acknowledging that we pray to you because you are God. The very act of prayer is an act of praise because we know that there is none higher than you that we can appeal to. We know that there is no other power that can impact the things that we are praying about other than you. We acknowledge that you are God alone and we don't presuppose that our prayers are telling you what to do. We are simply, Lord, trying to be conduits of what you are choosing to do. We are trying to align ourselves with your will. We are attempting to be intercessors and to send up petitions that that will draw out those things that you want to send our way. And Father, I pray for revival today. I don't pray for the revival of America. I pray for the revival of American churches. I pray for the revival of American Christians. I pray for the revival of Bible-believing Christians, those who know the Lord Jesus Christ but need to be re-energized and revived in their walk with Him. I pray for us, dear God, that you would send a supernatural sweeping of your Holy Spirit across our hearts and our souls that would stir us to a new level of action and commitment for you. Father, I pray that it would spill out from the churches into the communities where we would go out and live and love like Christ, that we would tell the message out loud and see others get saved. Father, we know that this is a big ask. We know that only you can do this. We have no program, nothing that can do it. It is only you who can send it. And so we ask, like Elijah asked, knowing that we don't have a perfect track record, knowing that we don't have uh, any merit of our own, but we come only on the credit that was given to us by Jesus Christ when he died for us and made the way open. And we ask it not in our name, but in his name, the name that is above every name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.